2020 is, for many of us, the first year without a harvest festival. What does our agricultural chaplain think of a year that will live long in the memory and not in a good way? The wettest year, the driest year, the most awkward year for getting the crop back in the ground and the worst yield since 2012. And in part two of a fascinating conversation with the founder of the small robot company, we'll find out what Sam Watson-Jones was hinting at last week when he talked about networking farms. There are some really good farmers and there are some not so good farmers, you know, and, and, and we know this. But then the power of what's possible in the future is that we're going to have a network, a learning network of interacting machines. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, I am Steve Orchard. This is The Farming Programme. Hope you've had a good, if wet, week. We'll see what the coming week has in store for us weather-wise at the end of the programme. And Sean and Kit are here with agronomy and a look at the markets. First, following the controversy over the chair of Red Tractor appearing to vote against the very standards that she was expected to uphold, something she denies was the case, Baroness Neville Rolfe will step down from her position on November the 12th. And supporting the NFU's million-strong petition to make law the protection of food standards in the UK post-Brexit, a group of consumers have written to their local MP to add their weight to the campaign, and they're asking for our help. Lucia Wally has organised this, and she's on the line. Lucia, thanks for joining us on the farming programme this morning. Just summarise, if you would, what you're trying to achieve with this letter. So what we're trying to do is, we've seen the National Farmers Union actually calling for this, they've got a petition running. They want, they want British farming standards to be enshrined in UK law to give us that protection, to protect our farmers. And as consumers, we want that too, because we want to know that when we go to the supermarket, the meat we're picking up for to feed our families with hasn't got E. coli or Campylobacter in it, for example, that the animals are being treated fairly, etc. Um, so it's something that I think that consumers feel very passionately about. It makes sense to me that farmers and consumers should kind of spread the word on this, because the more people who are aware of it, the more people can you know, make some noise and make it, you know, get, get themselves heard. So I got together with 75 other mums to write to our local MP because, you know, one person writing alone doesn't have much of an impact. But if we get together and, and, and you know, voice our concerns together, hopefully we'd make more of an impact. Briefly, give me an outline of what your letter says. We want our MP to back um, enshrining UK food and farming standards into law. That's the only way the consumers are going to be protected. That's the only way the farmers are going to be protected, by making our current standards law so that when we're negotiating in other countries, they have to meet our standards before we allow their products into the country. OK, now you're in Chichester. You've done this to your local MP. How yeah. can my listeners, predominantly in Lincolnshire, help with this campaign? Well, I think that we all need to, as a country, as consumers and farmers, contact our local MPs and, and make our voice heard as we found with this government that... Um, if things get slipped under the carpet, then, you know, they don't get looked at. But if people are actually aware of what the implications are of this and make some noise, there is a very real chance that, you know, we can make a difference and we can push the government to enshrine food and farming standards in the UK into law so that come January 1st, we know that if, for example, we have a trade deal with the Americans, we're not going to be allowing food in that isn't produced to our high standards. OK, now you've got a template of the letter, I gather, online. Yes, yeah, so sussexlocal.net have published my letter in full to Janine Key, so that could be copy and pasted and used by people if they wanted to, or they can read it, um, make themselves aware of the situation, and then take that uh, and you know use parts of it to write to their MPs. It's really easy to write to your MP. If you use a website like they work for you, 
www.mpsmanagementsystems.com. They tell you what your uh, your MP's email address is. You can copy and paste left your email your MP, and all you need to add is your name and address because MPs require your full postal address to make sure that they actually are your constituents. Okay, just give me that website one more time. Sussexlocal.net. Okay, Lucia, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Good luck with the campaign. One of the numerous casualties of COVID that has been missed by so many is the traditional Harvest Festival. So I've invited agricultural chaplain Alan Robson to the programme this morning. Now, I don't know about you, Alan, but I really can't remember a year the likes of the one we've just had. Yeah, it's been the most extraordinary time in all my 20 years. I haven't quite come across anything like this. The wettest year, the driest year, the most awkward year for getting the crop back in the ground and the worst yield since 2012 so it's um, been an extraordinary year and um, a real challenge going forward I think for many. Let let us draw a line almost under 2020 because you, you would kind of think to yourself it can't get any worse than this but a lot of people have been affected in lots of different ways not just financially but of course uh, we've spoken with LRSN the Lincolnshire Rural Support Network several times through the year but a lot of people have, have needed help haven't they this year? I think if people can work together, converse together, collaborate together, whatever word we can think of, which means we think together, I think that can only be good. And I think that's the task for this next year. Keep talking. People have been isolated. People have felt a bit out of sorts, you know, dealing with lots of pressures, lots of challenges. But if we can keep working together and talking together, we might end up coming up with some solutions. And have we had harvest festivals this year it would have been a bit of a strange one because the crops have been for the most part so poor that you wouldn't be giving thanks for an awful lot really would we yeah. well it's all safely gathered in well on some farms yes but on a huge number not all has been safely gathered in and are we going to see that as part of the norm going forward i don't want to be pessimistic but you know there are challenges ahead and we've got to get real about that and find ways of ensuring that we build resilient futures and enable the next generation to potentially have a better better time than uh, the present. You hit the nail on the head by saying simply that at the farm level, at the field level, we need to support each other. We need to talk. We need to be there for each other, really, don't we, as we go into uh, the next cycle? The next three years four years are going to be really challenging. So the open open doors, open ears, watching out for each other. Um, yep, being kind and, and being ready to see the signs. And, and, and thankfully now there's much more awareness. You know, we do have land agents and agronomists and uh, seed merchants and others who you know, are getting a better understanding that we all, every single one of us, get moments where we just think, oh, this is unbearable. Um, and the answer is, well, when it feels like that, talk to somebody. Uh, the chaplaincy, me, uh, and LRSN, there's plenty of people who are willing to see through the fog. Absolutely. And on that note, Alan, thank you so much for your time once again. I think that just about sums it all up quite nicely. All right, well... Here's to a, a, a hopefully a, a brighter Christmas. Well, let's hope. 
Let's keep everything crossed. Thanks, Alan. Time for agronomy now with Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services. Funny old year, eh, Sean? Yes, a very good morning to you, Steve. It's certainly been a funny old 12 months. Remember this time last year, all we were moaning about was the rain. What a difference a year makes. Wouldn't it be nice just to be moaning and worrying about a drop of rain? If we could just find someone to press the reset button on 2020. Still, you know, the best thing about 2020 is that it's nearly 2021. I can't think of many good things about 2020. Um, so if you're not involved in farming and you'd like to know what it feels like to be involved in farming during this coronavirus pandemic... Remember when the Titanic film, that when the Titanic was sinking and the band were up on the deck and they continued to play? Well, we're the band. So let's move on to agronomy. All seed rape, Centurion Max, Chellis, Clethodim type products, now too late for those at the 1st of November. Also too late by calendar date for nitrogen applications onto all seed rape with the NVZ rules, etc. And it's too early. The weather's all wrong for curb propismized applications at the moment. The 30 centimetre soil temperatures are currently between 13 and 16 degrees Celsius. They need to be 10 degrees Celsius and falling at that 30 centimetres depth. Now, as we move through November, clearly we're going to get frost. Things are going to cool down. It will get wetter. The temperature at 30 centimetres is far less variable than the 10 centimetre depth that a lot of people use. If you're working to 10 centimetre depth, then it needs to be 8 degrees Celsius and falling. But if you're at that 30, it needs to be at least 10 degrees and falling. Propizomide, the reason we say it needs to be colder is because for optimum efficacy, it needs to be in contact with the blackgrass roots for as long as possible. Soil temperatures helps us achieve that. The colder soils slow the breakdown of the propizomide, and that means the blackgrass roots can take it up for a much longer period. That's how it optimises weed control. Now, when you've got a 10 degree soil temperature at 30 centimetre, propizomide has a half-life of about 100 days. If the soil temperature is 17 degrees at 30 centimetres, the half-life is around 50 days. So it makes a massive difference to how long it lasts and how much good it's going to do. Delaying those propizomide products until the soils are cold and wet in late November, if you apply at the end of November, that should last you then until the end of February if the soil temperatures are cold. And don't forget, while I'm talking about all-seed rape, rape winter stem weevil, get your sticky traps out and look very closely in these crops to find those little pests because last spring there were much higher numbers of rape winter stem weevil larvae in my all seed rape that survived the winter than there were cabbage stem flea beetles so don't underestimate them and don't forget about them um, canopies very very thick at present at the moment ground cover absolutely everywhere like an umbrella and direct soil contact is just not going to happen at the moment and because these soils are too warm anyway just wait until these canopies open up with a bit of cold weather until that soil temperature at 30 centimeters gets down to 10 degrees and falling and you're good to go remember we can use propizomide up until the end of january we can apply it on a frost so there's plenty of time and the colder it is the longer it lasts and the better it will work We've got light leaf spot, alternaria, foma. The frequency of those diseases is definitely increasing out there in the field to threshold in many cases. So don't just do propizomide too early just because you can tank mix the fungicide with it and it gets a job out of the way and saves you a path. Put the fungicide on now while it's needed and do the propizomide when the conditions are right for propizomide. And that is not currently the case. There are some issues out there with nutrition in these fields. The wet autumn and winter of 2019-20 will have caused issues, particularly with things like sulphur and nitrogen, which will have leached, but also with nutrition like potash 
and other micronutrients. So if in doubt, do a soil test and possibly a tissue test. But remember, a tissue test gives you a snapshot of what's in that tissue on that day. A bit like taking a photograph off a motorway bridge of the traffic on a motorway. You can see that it's full of cars, but a photograph won't tell you whether those cars are moving or stuck in a traffic jam. So soil and tissue, belt and braces is probably best. Soil probably more relevant than tissue. Um, and remember, if you're in the field, if you've got the new leaves in all seed rape are dark green and the older leaves are pale green, that's likely to be nitrogen deficiency. If you've got the older leaves dark green and the new leaves are pale green, that's probably sulfur deficiency. You've got phosphorus deficiency if the leaves tend to go purple and pink around the edges. If the magnesium deficiency is the problem mg is a symbol for magnesium and that means you get a chlorosis from the middle of the leaf so the margin will be green mg and the middle of the leaf will be chlorotic if it's manganese deficiency you tend to get chlorosis from the edge of the leaf inwards so manganese symbol is mn the margin not green that's how i was always taught to remember it if it's potassium deficiency you'll it'll cause issues in the plant way before any symptoms become visible that's why it's so important to understand with your soil test what you're dealing with if you've got a magnesium to potash ratio two to one in favor of the magnesium that will be locking up the potassium so last year's weather will most definitely not have leached the potash but it will have moved it through the profile always best to know what you're dealing with winter wheat very little to report slug activity is in isolated patches not as much as we would expect to see but the rain is actually running some of these more open cloddy seed beds together now which will inhibit slug movement remember they move in the air gaps between the clods they don't tunnel like worms do so this rain may well be helping us out against slugs Get your traps out, put bran-based traps out rather than blanket applications of slug pellet. Remember your metaldehyde restrictions, 210 grams of active ingredient from the 1st of August to the 31st of December. And remember also metaldehyde is hydrophilic. So as soon as a pellet gets wet, the metaldehyde in that pellet will go into the water and it'll go wherever that water goes. Ferrous phosphate does not do that and it only damages slugs and snails. So in these conditions, ferrous phosphate makes far more sense to me. Time it as well so that there's a dry spell to follow application, then you'll get the most out of your pellets. So that'll really do for this week. It's a wet old lot. You don't get much dry in a wet time. It's always wet. It's just before it dries up. And it's an ill wind that blows from your Wellington boots. We'll see what the next seven days bring. Thank you, sir. Sean will be back with his farming violin same time next Sunday. Sam Watson-Jones, founder of the small robot company, teased us last week with talk of farming networks. Farms moving from being individual, sometimes isolated, but in many cases doing the same thing. Sam, what exactly did you mean by networking? Um, at the moment, farms are isolated. The individual farmer takes a decision, the, the best decision that they believe is, is the right one for their particular farm which is based on the research that they happen to have done on their farm, what they've learned over the years, the friends that they have, the discussion groups they're part of, the conferences that they go to, et cetera, et cetera. There are some really good farmers and there are some not so good farmers, you know, and, and, and we know this. But then the, the power of what's possible in the future is that we're going to have a network, a learning network of interacting machines where there is an action that, is, that takes place on my farm and it works or it doesn't work, but the robot measures the result. And then that learning, okay, this is the optimum seed spacing for this particular seed type, or this is the optimum seed depth, um, or this is the exact right dose of nitrogen, or whatever it might be, whatever action is taken, that learning is then spread throughout the network. So that if you have 10,000 farms in the network, every harvest that happens on your farm, 
you have 10,000 harvests worth of learning, if that makes sense. And so that's how you will, you will see a huge acceleration and a huge gap grow between the farms that are part of a learning network and the farms that are operating in isolation. And that, I think, is is one of the really big changes that we're going to see in the industry. So we're talking networking farms together to learn, not to take away their independence. Let's make that clear. Where are we with the technology at the moment, Sam? Yeah, we're not quite there yet, um, neither within Small Robot Company nor, nor with other companies that are, doing, that are doing similar things. The stage that we're at at Small Robot Company is we have farmers paying for our services, um, but a relatively small number of farmers. And that number of farmers is is steadily growing. And these are people who have uh, you know, been engaging with us for, for a couple of years and have already had free and in inverted commas trials um, that, have, that have happened on their farms. And now we're moving towards a commercial service. So it is in that sense, commercially available, but in a very restricted way. And I think that for small robot company, probably three to four years, I think, before it is widely commercially available so that you know, any farmer could order equipment from us and have that on their farm. What I do think, though, is that the acceleration towards a new way of doing things is going to be faster than previous tech adoptions in farming. As a society, we are more used to new technologies coming in. Things like the, the coronavirus pandemic have forced us to adopt new technologies uh, more quickly than than previously we would have done you know we're doing this with this conversation via zoom uh, and so i think that that impact is going to happen in farming so this is not like you know the transition from horses to tractors took you know 30 years um this is going to happen much more much more quickly than that and so yeah it's an exciting time you know farming really is on the cusp of, a, of an enormous change but precision farming is not a new thing has it really had an impact? When will it make a difference to the bottom line and to the environment? So I think, you know, to say something slightly contentious, you know, precision farming in its current form was invented in about 1990. And, and since 1990, farms are not producing any more than they were. Um, it is more expensive to farm. Farms are less, are less profitable. And our interaction with the environment, you know, whilst there are some pockets of really good work going on with, with farmers, has farming as a whole, as an industry, have we got significantly better in terms of our interaction with the environment over that 30 years? I would, I would suggest probably not. So you could say that precision farming in its current form just isn't working. And we need, some, we need a new wave of technologies to come in to really tackle these challenges, these challenges head on. Has cost been an issue preventing this really moving forward, Sam? Uh, cost to the farmer or cost to development cost to, uh, well, to, to, I mean, to, to the not, company? Not something that's yeah. going to come cheap, is it? You know, we've been going for, for three and a half years now. Um, uh, when I started this, I was full-time managing, managing the, the family farm and I was doing a small robot company you know, one day a week or one day a fortnight and gradually, gradually it's kind of taken over and now this is, this is basically uh, my, my full-time job. Um, we've got a team of 30 people now. We're growing that team to uh, approaching 60 people by the by the middle of by the middle of next year. And still, you know, the bulk of that spend is on is on research and development. Um, and and it has to be it has to be that way um, because um, because this is you know it's 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 challenging stuff that we're that we're talking about. You know, gathering 
you know, billions of data points across a, across a farm and having the ability for machines to interact with those those billions of data points. It's a capital in intensive game um, for, for certain. But in terms of but the opportunity at the end of the uh, at, at the end of all this is enormous because we're talking about you know we're talking about a five trillion dollar global industry that is going to completely transform as we as we see it you know new ways of doing things new companies coming into that space and transforming the way that we farm in terms of the cost of the farmer you know farmers can expect that the initial cost of using robots will be comparative with what it costs them at the moment but i think one of the exciting things is that over time the cost of these new technologies will reduce you know the computers that we are talking on uh, for this for this phone call are you know simultaneously much much more powerful and much much cheaper than they were 10 years ago and i think you know that kind of uh, moore's law impact um, that technology uh, is subject to digital technologies are subject to has never really found its way in farming. Farm technologies generally just always got more expensive. I think this new wave of technologies as we kind of lead into what we're calling the fourth agricultural revolution, you will see uh, technologies get cheaper over time. And so actually the cost of producing a ton of wheat, I think will reduce um, significantly over the next 20 years, which is in itself an exciting transformation because previously we've always expected that will always get more expensive, but I don't think that there's a future for farming if that is the case. We'll hear the final part of my conversation with Sam Watson-Jones next Sunday, in which we'll be discussing the Farm Ambition Programme. And don't forget, it's available to podcast on iTunes, the Lynx FM website and all podcast platforms. To the markets now with Kit Dickinson from Openfield. Morning, Kit. Good morning, Steve. The recent rise in prices has been predicted on a cocktail of increased global demand, a record Black Sea prices, reduced maize production forecasts and concerns around the new prospects in the northern and southern hemispheres has come to an abrupt halt and gone into reverse. What have we learned since the arrival of coronavirus is that our food security is high on the list of priorities, with major importing countries building stocks not dissimilar to what we initially saw in the UK, where households stocked up on food staples. This also is apparent in the major exporters, Russia and the Ukraine, now have their own food price issues to contend with, both of whom will inevitably end up with export quotas. China continues to replenish their stocks and in the meantime fearing logistical issues caused by COVID-19, which could stem the usual trade flows. With the US presidential election on the horizon, it is possible that there will be more market disruption, particularly if there is no clear-cut winner, which, along with COVID-19, will strike fear into the equity and energy markets and could precipitate more selling. It is unlikely that global demand could withstand another lengthy lockdown, and we could expect a diluted version this time in the hope that we will all cause less disruption. The EU balance sheet is very tight and in need of significant grain imports, which will be becoming increasingly difficult to source, which may necessitate exporting less, which only shifts the burden elsewhere. Looking at malting barley, a quiet week overall with the focus on moving contracts taking precedent. Rain has continued across the UK and has seen fieldwork grind to a halt with some discussion on what this means at this stage for the spring barley planting. News headlines once again highlight the issue the industry has regarding predicting demand for consumers with French moving into another national lockdown and ongoing discussions in Germany for something similar. Pressure is mounting within the UK so all eyes are on government announcements. As we move into November, it is worth checking your moisture levels in your heaps and knowing whether you will need an aquatoxin certificate to accompany your grain movements. 
Oilseed rate, external influences finally proved to be great this week within the UK. Values seeing a large correction on the back of the five straight lower sessions on Matif. With global equity and energy markets also coming to the increasing coronavirus cases and concern over the future demand impacting on the market sentiment, fears of an oil glut, which has seen crude values fall, which in turn has pressured the vegetable oil market, could all be impacted. China has also been absent for most of the week, although there had been a sale to unknown destinations, which previously has turned out to be China, offers a glimmer of hope. This is still not clear whether recent rumours about the vessels discharging issues caused by high volume of imports could explain the recent absence on more strategic pause in buying. Closer to home, the GBP is nudging a little firmer on the back of the seemingly more positive Brexit discussion, which has not helped the UK domestic calculation. So moving on to prices this week, feed wheat. 185 to 187 for November, pushing slightly higher to 186 to 188 for December. February, the same price at 187 to 189, and May is flat as well at 187 to 189. Worth looking at November new crop at 151 to 153. Milling wheat premiums are currently £20. Oil seed rate for November is 336 to 338. The same price for December at 336 to 338. February nudging higher at 338 to 340, but sadly reducing again to May at 337 to 339. Feed barley values for November are 137 to 139. December 138 to 140, with a flat price through to February 138 to 140. May 140 to 142. Malting premiums are currently £12 for a 185 nitrogen and £20 for a 165 nitrogen. Many thanks as ever, Kit. And if you want to contact Kit, you could do so through the website openfield.co.uk. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. So what do we have in store this week? Well, low pressure for a couple more days, bringing unsettled weather, then high pressure later in the week, bringing colder, calmer and clearer conditions. Brisk winds from the southwest mostly today and tomorrow, gusting up to 50 miles per hour with plenty of rain continuing until Monday afternoon. Highs around 12 Celsius today and a couple of degrees warmer tomorrow, but then things start to cool. By the middle of the week, we'll struggle to hit double figures Celsius. The wind calms significantly from Wednesday and it'll be dry after some light rain on Tuesday for the rest of the week. Finally, good luck to Lincolnshire young farmers who receive the welly today from Northumberland YFC. This is part of their welly relay fundraising campaign. Local members will complete 199 miles to cover the distance between all 17 clubs in the area before handing it on next Sunday. And if you want to add your support, there's details how at linksyfc.org.uk. Until next week then, at the same time, I'm Steve Orchard. Stay safe, stay positive and have a good farming week.